So this week we are thrilled to be joined by John McDonald, Labor MP. Um, you may know him, uh, and he has been reading along with us uh, actually throughout the entire season of this podcast. So we're excited to get into talking about the book with him as well. Um, so to start, John, what, one thing I'm interested in is your personal political development. Can you tell us a little bit about it, your youth? Before I do, can I just thank you? It, this has just been, during lockdown, this has been one of the joys of the lockdown. Just hearing your voices has been really terrific. And the interviews that you've done have been tremendous. And I like, I like the way you work between you as well. Some of the stuff, I, I've really enjoyed it. I'm a, I'm a few chapters behind you, which is a bit frustrating because I've been a bit busy in the last couple of weeks with um, real problems coming out of the pandemic with quite significant um, job layoffs, sackings and redundancies. It's been a nightmare. But um, So I'm a bit behind you. But what, the interviews you've done have been brilliant. Sheila at Robottom's interview, I thought was just superb. And I, I just, what a lovely person she is. And what yeah. I liked at the end... There's an expression that, uh, that, that I don't know if you use it as well. You know, there's no side to a person. There's no frills or any attempt to um, be in any way more than you are. And I thought she was terrific. And at the end, when she said, at the end of the interview, she said, was that all right? Because I'm not very good at talking. <laughs> it, wonderful. And she said, I'm good at lectures with notes, but not very good at talking. I thought, one of the best conversations I've listened to in years. And she's so self-effacing. Anyway. Uh, my political background, very quickly, if people are interested, not much. Well, John, why don't we talk about the layoffs a little bit first? What has been going on? Yeah, let's go into that. Um, what's happening is that um, as a result of the pandemic, um, the, the Conservative government under Johnson and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, um, when I was shadow chancellor up until um, the recent period, we were submitting papers to the government on what needed to happen. And so we argue, for example, for what they call the furlough scheme, it was introduced in Denmark, where people uh, have to go home, there's no, no work for them, or they have to self-isolate. And we were arguing that they should be paid their wages 100% with some contribution to the company. We also wanted to ensure that the self-employed were protected, but also we wanted a significant rise in benefits for those who are not in work, um, particularly people with disabilities, the carers, etc. The government has introduced some of those measures, but in a very half-hearted form. And what they've done is they've funded companies to furlough their staff without any conditions. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is a number of companies, I give the example of, of what is, I think, a rogue company now called British Airways. It used to be a nationalised industry, it used to be our national airline. It's still, the, it's still the flag carrier. You see the Union Jack flying on their, their airplanes. What they've done, they've taken the money, they've furloughed staff, but now, a couple of weeks ago, they've issued 12,000 redundancy notices. But then after that, they then say, we're going to dismiss all staff and we'll lay off permanently 12,000, but we'll bring the other 30,000 back into work, but forced wage cuts and undermining terms and wages conditions. Heathrow Airport is in my constituency. 
So British Airways is based in my constituency. The airline pilots, BALPA, the Union for the Airline Pilots is in my constituency. But what I'm finding is large numbers of people, and remember, in aviation, um, often what you'll find is whole families are working at the airport. Some will be working for British Airways, others will be working in other parts of the airport. So all of a sudden, overnight, as a result of British Airways announcement, I've got families now whose their whole economic well-being has gone. They've got literally the whole family laid off, mother, father, sons, that sort of thing. So it really is caused immense, you can imagine what the sort of reaction is in the whole community. That's the first thing. But what's really pushed people over the edge is that um, British Airways is part of an international group, IAG. They've taken money off the Spanish government. And what they're doing is they're laying off free A workers here to undermine wages and conditions, but they're using their resources and they've got quite significant resources to buy up other airlines. So it's a sort of Darwinian law of the jungle. Who's going to survive at the end of this within aviation? They're just a company called Air Europa. And the reason that they're allowed to get away with this is because the government is attached, the government here has attached no conditions to the financial support they've given to companies. And what I was arguing for when I shadow chancellor is resources going in to protect wages, not profits, conditionality. And so, for example, on, I'll just give the example of the airport. When 9-11 happened, when the volcano happened and the airport got closed down virtually, I chaired a number of meetings with the unions and the, the companies and we agreed temporary measures. You know, we accepted that people would, would be laid off, but they'd have their wages guaranteed. So one of the arguments that we put for the government this time is that where there is a temporary problem like this, there should be a commitment to re-engagement for those staff. And even if this goes on much longer than anything we've experienced in the past, there should still be re-engagement clauses. So those workers should be given the first refusal of their jobs back. That's not happening. So what we're finding is, and British Airways is only the first, what we're finding is a number of employees, are, they won't let this crisis go to waste. They're using it to further their ambitions and strategies that they've had for years. British Airways for years has been trying to undermine wages and conditions at work. They, we had a, a strike a couple of years ago, a bitter strike of cabin crew, where they did exactly the same to the cabin crew, and it's been horrendous. i give another example. P&O Ferries, um, who, it's a ferry company that do the ferries between here and the continent of Europe, etc., Word has it, and I did a meeting with uh, the Hull Seafarers to the, the union, RMT. Um, it looks as they're going to lay off 900. Now, we understand the ferries are not moving at the moment much, that we understand that. So that what we're assigned to do is, through the union, negotiate a temporary arrangements. So those workers have their wages subsidised, but they're brought back on. No, the, what the company is doing is bringing Filipino workers in at a third of the wage rate of the existing UK seafarers. Now, the union is not bothered where the people, just, this isn't to do with nationality, it's to do with the undercutting of wages by an employer, deliberately using the pandemic as an excuse to do that. RMT have dealt with this in the past because where foreign labour has been brought in to do that, the union has recruited them. And we've had a successful strategy around that, and that's what we'll try and do this time. But there's a brutality to this. And it's impacting upon people in a way which is affecting them, the stress, the mental health issues that are arising within our communities. So that's what's happened. And, and at the moment, the government, the government is sitting on its hands. Um, obviously, they're under a lot of pressure from the business lobby. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, I, I, I come at this as a bit of a political artisan, okay? You look at a government, you look at politicians and you think, even if you're bitterly opposed to everything they do, are they competent or not? And what we've got in Boris Johnson increasingly revealed now is someone actually who desperately wanted to be prime minister, now he's there, can't do the job. And uh, Rishi Sunak, the chancellor they brought in again, is dominated by number 10 Downing Street, by the Prime Minister's office and his advisor, Dominic Cummings. And as a result of that, we have policies that are uh, slapdash, uh, not implemented particularly effectively. And at the same time, they turn a blind eye to real problems within the economy itself. That's hitting us all. So at the moment, um, there's a level of pretty strong feeling in the whole community in my constituency, but also that's happening across the country at the moment. Whereas Boris Johnson, who only you know, won an election six months ago with a sizable majority, now people are thinking, well, what have we done? Um, what have we put into number 10 in, in the crisis like this when you need someone who, even if you disagree with them politically, at least is competent and has a cool head for decision making. Anyway, so that's my rant today. Okay. But it's dire, it's pretty grim. It's pretty grim for working people at the moment. And as I say, there's a number of companies who are ruthlessly exploiting this pandemic in a way which um, well, has to be condemned, but more importantly, has to be exposed. Well, what do you think are the prospects for this current crisis opening up new avenues of solidarity and militancy and resistance for working people? This is a question a, in the U.S., obviously, that we're, we're very yeah. much thinking about. But I did a, a, a couple of lectures over the last week, one for the um, Marx Memorial Library and the other for London School of Economics. And I was trying to explain to people, look, there's a lot of um, people who are arguing that this crisis opens up a, a huge opportunity for the left because it demonstrates exactly what's needed within our society and how uh, austerity over the last decade or so has ill-prepared us for dealing with this pandemic. I, I think that's true, but I also, the, the, what I'm trying to warn people about is actually it opens up an opportunity for the right as well. And I went through the banking crash and there was an opportunity there. There was a small window of opportunity that lasted for about six months where people saw what capitalism was all about and how a capitalist crisis um, was used effectively by um, the establishment to further its own ends. And lessons weren't learnt quickly enough or rapidly enough about that. And the left missed the opportunity, I think, of itself using that to open up the sort of window of debate around the issues that people confront. This time around, I'm saying, please, you have to recognise the right will seize upon this. Do not underestimate the potential that there is for the rise of the far right again as well. Because if we do go into a significant recession for any period of time, the right will do the usual thing, which is look for scapegoats. After the tragedy of George Floyd, we have had um, demonstrations, just as in the US, but here, mass numbers of young people demonstrating in our streets. I don't know whether you saw in the news, but in Bristol, um, they targeted a statue of a slave owner and brought that statue down and threw it in the river. Interesting enough, what happened then is Boris Johnson, seized upon that, tweeted out um, this fear that there'd be attacks on other statues, Winston Churchill, and he called up effectively the far right. And so the far right marched into central London and were physically abusing people, etc. And it just shows you, just shows you how a mob, because that's what it was, can be called up in that way. 
I should know it goes back to it goes back to the book doesn't it you know, the, the king and church or the, the church and the establishment mobs that were uh, that were raised up by those in power and that's exactly what happened on this occasion and I'm trying to say to people just that that's just one small example of what can be done we went through in the 1980s when we had Mrs Thatcher in power and uh, 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 recession after recession in terms of working people and working communities what mrs thatcher did by her right-wing politics she gave permission for the far right to rise up and as a result of that we had appalling instances of the far right targeting migrants in particular my constituency multicultural one of the most multicultural in in the country and it is next to southall which again is a large asian population uh, and we had the National Front in the 80s mobilise in in, um, in Southall and demonstrations took place. And the police, uh, there was a famous case of a teacher called Blair Peach who was killed by a police officer, but no police officer was prosecuted. And I just thought all the ingredients are here now, if we're not careful, not for people to learn the lessons of austerity and this pandemic and what's needed, and therefore establish a program of progressive policies, but there's also the risk of the far right using this. And that's what we've got to guard against, first of all. Secondly, we do have to come forward from the left and from pro progressive movements with, first of all, a narrative about where we go from here, but link that to a policy program as well, which concretely shows where we can go from here. And that's what a number of us are working on at the moment. We're launching a project called um, Claim the Future, you can imagine what it's been like on the left trying to have a debate about what the project should be called. That's been interesting enough in itself. <laughs> <laughs> the idea behind it is to look at an alternative economic strategy that we'll be able to um, mobilise behind. But more importantly, it's the old Marxist concept of praxis, really, not produce as a think tank another set of papers, etc. We've got those. We can put those together. But more importantly, identify who's campaigning on the ground around those issues and how do we support them. But are there any gaps in those campaigns that we need to bring people together on so that, again, you're building a movement more than just um, setting up a series of policies that you expect people automatically to fall behind? That sounds like a big project. It is, but we've got to be ambitious. The crisis is big, so the response has to be right. big. Sure. And what's interesting is uh, the level of creativity. Is uh, I'm always impressed. We, The last five years... Um, We've rebuilt the left think tank architecture in this country. Mm. One of the biggest failings of the movement, um, and I think it might even have been deliberate as well, um, for a long period of time was a lack of political education, particularly in the Labour Party. Um, the lack of the development of think tanks. In the 80s, you had Labour socialists in local government, like the GLC. People like Hilary Wainwright and Robin Palmer and others developing economic strategies on the ground and testing their implementation prior to big issues as well. All that sort of got destroyed as we went into the late 90s and into the 2000s. So what we've had to do in the last five years is try and re-establish an architecture of think tanks and rebuild the trade union role in terms of the development of policy as well. And that, that's been incredibly successful. So now that enables us to draw upon fresh ideas with detailed research that enables us then to confront issues like the pandemic. And the, the issue now is the sort of society we want to create afterwards. During the Second World War, what happened was, is even in the darkest times, 
of the war when things looked pretty grim, progressives and socialists came together and they looked back on the 30s and said, never again. And then they started dreaming and discussing and planning what the sort of society we wanted after the Second World War. And I was saying that's the role of progressives and socialists now. Look back on the last 10 years of austerity and just say never again, but then start planning now the society that you want and start talking to people and start the campaigning for it and all different aspects of that society. And what has been just terrific, really, there's a huge new generation of, of, as I say, people working in think tanks, in different campaigns, and the creativity is staggering. You know, any issue you raise, people will come up with a whole range of different options, ideas, get the debate going. And there's a sort of, uh, I think uh, there's the potential, despite the, the loss of the election in December, which really knocked us all back, people have come out of a sort of period of mourning now and are really organising on the ground as best they can. But more importantly, they're involved, I think, in a, a really thoroughly um, comprehensive intellectual debate now about the nature of society and the nature of the economic foundations of that society that that we need so uh, out of this adversity and the tragedy of the pandemic and there've been real tragedies we've all we've all known someone who, who's unfortunately suffered badly and some lost life out of that tragedy now people's determination to change the world i think is is the thing that that we may well this period might be remembered for. I did want to ask you about the election and the loss and what has sort of what's followed for you from that experience. I mean, it's great to hear that you're seeing this wealth of creativity. I'm curious what else is coming from that. Yeah. Um, the election was a nightmare. It was a real blow. Of course it was. Um just so you know, I, I don't want to get into the intricacies of the Labour Party itself because it becomes essentially boring after a bit. Sure. What's revealed since the um, loss in 2019 is just how close we came in 2017. But also, you may know the story of this leaked report that was there, um, which, if true, um, also reveals just how close we came but how much we were undermined in that campaign by the senior echelons of the party, bureaucracy uh, and other elements of it. So there's a sense of frustration that we came so close, but were undermined from within. You need to learn that lesson. There's a lot of discussions going on. The report was published this week um, that was led by Ed Miliband, our former leader, and others into the reasons for the loss. And again, it was... The report itself uh, is not bad, it's pretty well balanced as well. So there's lots of lessons that people with humility are learning, which is very good. It's almost as though it's quite, because of the pandemic, the general election loss seems years ago rather than six months ago. The world has you know, changed and Christopher Hill and all the rest, the world has turned upside down. Mm. And it, it, we've, been, we've been doing um, a sort of listening project over the last few weeks with a young woman called Christine Berry, um, I don't know if you've come across her, but if you get a chance, uh, do so, meet her. Um, she's a young author, uh, economist, uh, has written some really good stuff. And she's been facilitating a number of discussion groups where you bring together people from different walks of life. And you talk about, um, yeah, the world as it now is, the pandemic. But also we've been doing sessions about the values, what people value at the moment. 
And if the pandemic has done anything, it actually has made people sit back and think what they really value in life and what their priorities are. And should therefore we then talk to them about, well, if they're the sort of values that you now feel you have, how should society be changed to reflect those values? And people are buzzing with ideas about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Very basic stuff, you know. One of the things that's come out is you value people who care for you. You know, you, you, those people who work in our health service or in so, social care caring for us, who've been savaged over the last 10 years of austerity in terms of cuts, in terms of cuts in their wage freezes and cuts in their, uh, their conditions of employment, they've been privatised and outsourced. Right, the cleaners in particular, who essentially, if we're going to tackle issues like a pandemic like this, infections in particular, how undervalued them and exploited that they've been, people are now waking up and say, actually, we valued, um, you know, bankers and speculators in the city who contribute effectively nothing to our society more than we valued the very person who made sure if, a, if we keep a hospital clean or if we look after our elderly and we we care for them and treat them, actually we save lives. So again, it's issues like that. So it's been a a fundamental reappraisal of the role of the state. You know, for for 40 years under neoliberalism, we've been, uh, the the small state argument has been thrust down our throat, not just from Tories, not just from Conservatives either. We've had it with the Labour Party too at times. Now people are waking up to the fact, actually you do need the state, whether it's, local government, local councils, whether it's the NHS or whether it's the emergency services, there's a whole reappraisal of the role of the state now. It's opened up all sorts of debates about fairness within our society, about how we pay for those services. Um, it would be even a brave conservative now to get up and start arguing for austerity. So what's been interesting is how people are up now for um, a much more radical proposals but as I say that could go to the right run to the left if not careful I just give you a small example which I have to sometimes I roar with laughter over um, during the general election campaign as part of our manifesto I launched a policy that um, access to the internet was become connectivity was a key issue now it was an absolute part of everyday life and therefore it should be a universal basic service and so we said, because rather than have the government subsidise private companies, because that's what they were doing, rolling out full fibre broad, broadband, and they were being ripped off for it, and only 10% had been rolled out, and they were talking about billions of pounds going to private companies that provide a chronic service, we said what we should do is um, follow other examples where the state will roll it out, but it should be free. And it should be free to everyone, because it will establish connectivity as an essential part of people's lives. At that stage, I was condemned, uh, what was called full fibre Marxism. Now, now everyone has realised we've got government ministers arguing for broadband to be provided for everyone because it's part and parcel of children having their education and access to your family and making sure a community holds together. Now, suddenly, it's a, a remarkably radical mainstream policy that a lot of people are supporting. The other one is that we argued during the general election campaign that people work too long hours. Uh, so over a 10-year programme, we'd reduce the working week to 32 hours a week. Um, and this weekend, there's a group informed calling for a four-day week. So you have to, 
you have to smile at some of these things that were scorned only a few months ago now come onto the agenda. And, and again, as I say, I think people, I think people are in the frame of mind at the moment where they won't take it anymore. They're not going to go back and take austerity, no matter what the excuse will be. So therefore, they're not only are saying we, we refuse to accept austerity, we want to look at a different kind of life. We want to look at a different kind of society. How long that window of opportunity will last, I don't know. What I'm saying to uh, people and organizations on the left and progressive movements is that we need speedily now to be coming up with a clear narrative about what the vision for the future of our society is. But we need to link that to a very concrete program of action and that we need to be out there then, whether it's because we're on lockdown, whether it's online or whatever, but in every community event, every community organization, and then when the lockdown is lifted, um, forms of action that to get those ideas across and if necessary forms of action that confront those that um, refuse to refuse to change your comment raises uh, for me a question that I, I was hoping to ask you and that I've thought about as I'm sure all of us have for the last decade at least you know it's striking that since the Great Recession there's been so much social pain inflicted through inequality and austerity and I think we on the left have keep expecting all of this uh all of this social pain to manifest into solidarity right we it ought to and you know we read thompson and especially this week's chapter is about precisely how uh the orders in council in the late 18 you know the in after 1807 produce a kind of unbreakable social solidarity in the industrial north and certainly in this country also you know in places formerly industrial places, places with strong old trade union histories. Um, we've seen great difficulty actually in manifesting the marginalization of the working class into the kind of social solidarity and, and consciousness that we would hope for. So I'm curious to just sort of ask you and hear you talk about how you see the link or the, maybe the missing link between inequality and austerity on one hand and you know, the sort of missing social solidarity on the other and how we can reestablish that link. Yeah. Um, first things first, when, um, when a recession hits or when a recession hits and it is used um, politically with, for example, with austerity to protect the establishment, to protect the corporations and the rich, um, it hits people hard and Often what you find on the left, people will argue, well, the, the people will rise up. That's the time. It isn't. You know, it's, that's the time when people just want to survive. You know, you're more worried about, can I pay the rent next week? Or can I put food on the table? And stuff like that. It is only when dissatisfaction uh, only really mobilizes itself is when you're told we're coming out of that recession and you're not sharing in the benefits. And that's what mobilized the sort of social solidarity that nearly took us into government in 2017. After that, the establishment here needed something that would divert people's attention away from that form of social solidarity. And Brexit was the obvious issue. And that's what happened between 2017 and 2019. Brexit became the issue that could divert people's attention, divided working class thought and attitudes as well, and then tinged with a bit of racism too. You know, the, the fear of the, the migration has always been manipulated by the right right the way through. 
And that's what you find in Thompson's book, don't you? The manipulation of issues, etc. Particularly in, in Thompson's, is about the war in particular. And this is what this was: is the uh, the manipulation of feelings against Europeans and others, and whatever. The problem with it was is that there is a rational argument from the left about European institutions. Wow, they've been part and parcel of um, neoliberalism for a long period of time, so it divided the left as well. Uh, but moving moving on from that, um, I I just always say to people really never underestimate the ability of the establishment to divide and rule, particularly when they when you know we have to be realistic. It's not making excuses particularly when they do control all channels of communication virtually. So our strategy on the left is, has been, how do we ensure that we bring people together around very concrete issues in, that they're experiencing in their lives, then communicate how we can tackle those issues, but that does require, whether it's an industrial dispute, whether it's a campaign around a particular issue, around health service or welfare benefits, how actually we might be able to deal with some elements of improvement here, but it has to then move on to systemic change if we're going to consolidate and improve people's lives overall. And that's, result, that, that's meant that we've got to always be in a situation where we're examining how we organize and how we communicate. 2017, 2019, we lost the narrative. We lost the narrative, not just because of Brexit, but because of our own failings as well. And we have to be ruthlessly honest about that too. In the run-up between 15 and, and 17, um, what we decided to do in all the discussions that we were having is how do we mobilize? We've got to build a mass movement. So all our objectives was around building the movement, recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. So we went from a, a membership of 150,000, something like that, to half a million. And then we were knocking on nearly 600,000 at one point. What we failed to do is, is build into that mass recruitment sufficient training and, and political education. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because we bureaucratized ourselves a bit, no doubt about it. But also, actually, every day was a fight to survive. Every day was another coup coming from within the Parliamentary Labour Party or from, as we know now, from the bureaucracy itself. And although we had wild ambitions about, you know, really strong ambitions about building political education, community organizing, et cetera, we didn't translate that into the on, effectively on the ground. So one of the lessons to the future is actually that's got to be one of the most important key ingredients. Why do you need that? Because mainstream media, although you can be as professional and not lead with your chin, uh, and make sure that you're trying to do it as effectively as possible, the mainstream media is owned by the very people whose wealth and power we want to distribute. So they're going to come at us all the time. And sometimes it was farcical. In one of the lectures last week, I reminded people that on every serious political program I went on, the, uh, when they ran out of questions, they'd always ask me, are you a Marxist? And I'd go through, I'm a socialist. And that means I've, I've read the you know, teachings of the history of Robert Owen and William Morris and R.H. Tawney and Marx and others, etc. And the other one, the farcical one, was when I think it was the Daily Mail um, did this big expose of me being a KGB agent and um, going to a town in this home county of Guildford to get my orders. And Jeremy, I think he was a Czech agent or something. It was just extraordinary events they went. So the mainstream media, although you try and deal with them professionally, 
the reality is they're going to come at you throughout. Um, one of the ways we deal with more professionally is that actually on broadcast media, do live interviews. So literally, I was, uh, every morning I'm up at half five, going through nine or ten interviews three times a week, every morning up, up and trying to do in regional media, that sort of thing. Because in live media, at least you have that first few minutes to get your message across before they start editing. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the one advantage we had up to 2017 was the development of social media. And we had um, young people who were incredibly creative using social media much more effectively than our opposition. Uh, between 2017 and 2019, they, the Tories, the Conservatives learned that. And the amount that they put into expenditure on social media was enormous. There was a report after the general election that did an analysis of the factual information concerned, contained in the Conservatives' social media intervention that said 80% inaccurate. So our view then is do our best with mainstream media, do everything we can to use social media, but use our mass membership to get that message out door by door. But it can only work as long as you're building that movement up. And that's where we failed. We didn't build the social movement. We built it on a scale, but we didn't build it in a way with the resources to enable to get that message across as effectively as it could have been. And that's a lesson for the future. Everything we should be Everything we do now, we've got to recognize it. The only way we'll win as a result that we're the many, they're the few. So therefore, we've got to build that movement up, but build it in a way where people go out there fully understanding the world, but able to articulate the alternative argument as well. How is the Labour Party different now from when you were young, not just in terms of its positions, but like the social experience of party membership? I joined the Labour Party a bit later um when i was uh, when i was a kid my dad was um active in the trade union movement he was a, a branch secretary uh, he, he was my mum was a cleaner and my dad was a, a dock worker in liverpool i was born in liverpool and then we moved south because there was no work work was drying up so we moved south. and also um lots of strikes on the docks and things like that so if you're active trade unions should be targeted we moved south to where my mother came from, which was the east of England, a uh, rural area, Norfolk. Um, and my dad then became a bus driver. And my mum worked, worked behind the biscuit counter of um, a shop called the British Home Stores. It was like Woolies or something like that. So we lived off biscuits for most of my childhood. It was wonderful. Um, they, I, so my introduction for politics was the discussions that were around the kitchen table, my brother and I, with my dad and my mum. Um, and they pushed lots of read. We read and read and read, but my dad's active intervention in the trade union movement was where I got the politics from. So I was more trade union oriented than I was Labour Party. And I only joined the Labour Party much later on in my early 20s. Um, although I'd voted Labour and was worked in campaigns and stuff like that, I didn't join the party until later on because I was more interested in trade union work. Um, and the Labour Party then... In, um, in my constituency here, I've been here over 45, nearly 50 years now. Um, in the constituency here, um, it was a network of branches. All right, like reading the uh, E.P. Thompson's book, it's the organisation of the Labour Party then was exactly the London Correspondents' Society. Divisions, small divisions, and all the rest of it coming together, communicating with one another. So I turned up at my first Labour Party branch meeting. Um, there was an elderly woman who was the branch secretary uh, because women were always given the role of doing the notes. Absolutely, it was sexism. It's just extraordinary. When you look back on it now, 
And you think, God, did we really operate like that? So there, there was an elderly woman who'd always do the, the notes and things like that. And then you'd have sitting round in the room, maybe in your local branch, you'd maybe have about a dozen members or something like that. And it would largely be talking about local council work. The local councillor would give his report, it was always a he again, give his report, um, and then um, you might get a chance of raising any popular issues. Um, but then what happened was, that was the mid 70s, yeah, early to mid 70s. But then what happened in my constituency, quite a number of young people started joining. And we thought, blimey, blow this for a lark. This is, you know, this is terminally boring. Let's talk about politics, etc. Um, and we had uh, people in different individual organisations like militant, etc. within the Labour Party. So all of a sudden, a large number of young people then said, we can't go on like this. And there was a much more political attitude. And that was breaking out all over the country. And at the same time, um, you're involved in quite a large number of community campaigns, particularly as we moved into the 80s then, uh, and particularly about campaigns against Thatcherism. Um, and that just meant that you had a, a then from a very staid organization became quite a radical organization uh, and it changed dramatically. And you then had a huge discussion around feminism and the role of women. And again, all of a sudden that you then got um, women demanding representation, which were, which were a huge breakthrough. But then also, whereas the Labour Party did to a certain extent reflect their local communities, as the population began to change in demographics, there was a struggle to ensure the Labour Party properly represented those local communities as well. So then there was a real struggle around confronting racism within the party and making sure as well we had proper representation. It was quite a traditional organisation that then became radical and active uh, on the ground. Where there was you know, my work, my campaigning, once I joined the Labour Party, my campaigning was around community campaigns, around um, campaigning on issues like rent. Um, we set up a local law centre to uh, assist people because we had a range of evictions and things like that. But in addition to that, a lot of my campaigning was around trade union disputes. So I was active in the trade union movement. And it was in the trade union movement that was much more radical than at that time that was within the Labour Party. Then we moved into the 80s and we had the opportunities of the GLC and then piloting socialist policies as well in local government. So I have a question from the United States perspective. Uh, from your vantage point across the Atlantic, what do you make of the state of socialism and the labour movement in the United States? I, I plead guilty um, to not knowing enough about US politics um, and I'm rapidly reading up at the moment as much as I possibly can. There's almost a division of labour here. In, I chaired the Socialist Campaign Group in Parliament for a long period of time and I'm, I'm, now, I'm now officially the treasurer. They'll trust me with the money. That's a major advance in terms of the Socialist <laughs> Campaign Group. And what I, what I try to do with the Socialist Campaign Group on, on the left, of, it's the left MPs, is I always try to get them ready for government and work on the basis if there was an election, uh, be ready just in case. And if we could form a government on the left, it meant that people had to take their role seriously on the back benches. So people would assume different roles. And foreign policy was always Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn always took foreign policy and he's an expert widely known because of his 
active campaigning on foreign policy issues, on issues of human rights in particular that often other politicians wouldn't touch, um, but he bravely and courageously did. So I largely left anything beyond the anything beyond the boundaries of the UK. I was largely leave to Jeremy to get on with it, um, and I've concentrated on domestic policy and economic policy in particular, which I think has meant that I've only had a peripheral knowledge of politics ar around the globe, and I'm trying to catch up on that as much as possible. I always supported the campaigns that Jeremy brought to us and was involved in those, whether it was Palestine or whether it was in what was happening in the global south in a range of countries. So, uh, I mean, I took an interest in Indian politics as well because my own constituency too, but that's one of the things I'm, I'm concentrating on at the moment, reading up. So I'm trying to read up as much as I possibly can on, on US politics itself. Obviously, we were, in, uh, we were immensely committed to supporting Bernie Sanders' campaign, and um, it's been a real knockback um, in terms of what's happening there. I, I accept that. But it's the same position as we are in now, where you, you have to pick yourself up and move on to the next campaign. And the key, the key issue, I think, for all of us, and I think it's the same for yourselves now, is holding on to that um, rank and file enthusiastic movement that was being developed, holding on to those individuals and then moving it on to the next stage of, of the development of the movement itself. And I think that is, it gets back to making sure that we can develop amongst us a shared understanding of the world, but also then a shared understanding of what changes need to take place. And recognizing that actually um, those changes also will require quite a significant international movement of solidarity. That's why I've been involved in the setting up of the Progressive International. That's just been launched recently, which is, you know, small steps towards bringing progressives together on a global basis to talk through how we can support one each other in different campaigns. And, and to be frank, I, looking, at, looking at what I do about US politics, you know, I, I'm of that generation that can still remember the time when you know, the mention of the word socialism in US politics was complete anathema, wasn't it? Never heard of. And if anything, I'd almost given up on you. <laughs> in terms of, I thought, well, if there's going to be change, it's not going to come from the, of the establishment there. And as I say, the control of the media in, in particular. So when Bernie Sanders came along and that breakthrough, and most probably people had given up on us as well, but when the Bernie Sanders came along, that breakthrough, just to have that debate around socialism and the potential for socialist policies being brought forward was huge. The most important thing for all of us now, just as in the UK, we mustn't lose that momentum. We've got to maintain it. And that's the challenge. And I think it's perfectly capable, you know. I'm curious to ask you a question as the as the domestic policy thinker and economic policy thinker. Uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of debate on the left about how we should think about uh, socialism in capitalist democracies in an age when growth seems to be slowing and productivity seems to be slowing and there are real questions about how much growth we want given the climate crisis and I know these are issues you've thought about and I'm curious has your what where your thinking is at on these and whether it's changing in any way or developing the key aspect is to deal with the real world and the real world is we come out of this pandemic and we face the the real crisis and the real crisis is climate change and climate catastrophe. And we've got to en engage them 
with the real threat of climate change because we're running out of time so rapidly. And that means in some ways learning the lessons of the pandemic about, as I said, on values, what do we really value? So we learned the lessons from this pandemic, for example, of the role of the state. You know, the role of the state was essential to try and to in tackling the issue of the, the coronavirus impact. So now we've got to use the role of the state, essentially, to ensure that we can tackle um, the crisis that faces now in terms of climate change. Um, that, that does mean um, it opens up the opportunity as well of recognising that if we are going to intervene in that way, public ownership plays a role here because uh, public ownership, some of the essential um, services that are provided have, has to take place because left in private hands, they're not going to play a role in effectively in tackling the climate crisis. So I think that's where now all our thinking is going and has got to go. Because as I say, we're, we're just running out of time rapidly. now. I think people are up for that. I think people would be up for that. I think people realise now that you, you can't just sit on one side and allow the economy to be run the way it has been uh, and that there's got to be much more direct intervention now to enable, to enable us just to survive, to overcome this existential threat. So, John, before we wrap up, I want to ask how you're finding the book on this reading. I'm enjoying it. Um, it's the point that Thompson... Uh, made it's not a narrative don't you know anyone who comes into the book don't expect a narrative history of that period it's a series of individual articles individual essays and i think if you treat it like that you'll get a lot more from it because otherwise it can be frustratingly repetitive at times as well i mean what it's prompted is and this is you just haven't got enough hours of the day have you <laughs> what it's prompted me to do is go back over and go through chatter by chatter and i think actually I, have I really read Thomas Paine's Rights of Man in the way it has? So you go back over that. You know? So I've got, you can't see it. Look, here are piles of books. I've got, I'm going back over Perry Anderson's Lineage of Passages from Antiquity Fusion. It's, it's forced me basically to read much more widely again. And I go back over what I thought I'd read and understood. I actually now realise there's a lot more meaning and subtlety to what they're doing. Um, and uh, it's just, that's the nature of the thing. That's the nature of E.P. Thompson's work. It always is. It's stimulating, asks lots of questions. It'll often prompt you into further research. That's what it's done with me. Yeah, it's been fascinating. What made, how did it come about? Because I saw it on Twitter. I thought, what a fantastic idea. Who thought of this? I mean, it was early in the pandemic. It was fairly shortly after lockdown began. And I think actually the inspiration was that we'd seen a number of people who were just reading books aloud, um, mm. you know, for whoever was interested to just ha have a book read to them. And Alex, um, I think Alex tweeted, which of these several books should I read aloud? And Thompson was one of them. Uh, and you had never read it before, right, Alex? Right, that's right. And I, you know, I'm professionally, I'm a labor historian. I, I had read it at the beginning of my, of my um, PhD, but I was 23 years old. I think I, I barely absorbed, you know, I had at that point no real trade union experience. And so I think I really missed a lot of uh, what's in it and wanted to revisit it. And so I, I suggested to Alex that she rethink, uh, she rethink the approach and we could do it together. Yeah. yeah. 
it's one of those books that you know when you you first agree or whatever you, you you're involved in but what i've always used it for is when um it's a good book to go back and and look at a particular section of it when you're talking about an idea well, i'll give you an example what's been gr great here is that there's been a revival in recent years of looking at our, the history of the movement but in a way which is celebratory rather than just dour academic greatest respect without academic intervention there's a diggers festival up in wigan so they have a whole festival um, around the diggers and win stanley and it's a combination of music dance blah, 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 lectures discussions and a, and a fair amount of beer flowing as well and it's great we've also got others who are doing you know the toll puddle the toll puddle weekend or whatever that always oh, a week now as well I did enjoy Toll Piddle. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry, Gabe. Sorry about that. That was one of the. <laughs> that was a, a light interlude. Don't worry. My pronunciation of American towns to see will be just as bad. Don't worry about it. But the Toll Puddle um, week of activities is huge now. There's another one, a Burston school strike, where the schools uh, went on strike for a period of time up in Norfolk. So there's all these individual celebrations around different aspects of our history that are coming together now. We're thinking of doing, um, I did this LSE lecture during the week on, uh, with regard to Miller, Ralph Miliband's last book. But all of them, what's interesting, all of them have a purpose because what usually happens at these festivals and discussions is people talk about the current industrial struggles or political campaigns, and it's a, a way of forming alliances as well. So it's been really, it's been, it's been really fascinating how that's developed. Anyway, so when I saw the book was being read, I couldn't resist it, really. I think what you're describing is happening here, too. I remember a moment during the Sanders campaign when it was still going. Um, he held a rally on the anniversary of the Flint sit-down strike, which is the kind of formative strike in the formation of the United Auto Workers in, in the 1930s. Mm. And it, it was just a standard rally, you know, he was having one every day, but this one happened to fall on, on that anniversary. And I think one of, do you remember this, Alex? I think one of the maybe introductory speakers or something like this mentioned, oh, as it happens today is the, you know, 80 whatever anniversary of, of Flint. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the crowd sort of roared in, in approval and reaction. And I remember as I was just sort of following this on social media, uh, the reaction that many others and I also had was, it's amazing to live in a moment, actually, where the invocation of Flint and its anniversary resonates so powerfully. It's so yeah. meaningful. I don't think that would have been true even five years ago. No, it's but well, we've we've got to overcome a long period of being written written out of history, basically. You know, written out of history and deliberately so. Yeah. And deliberately so. But also, what I is interesting as well is that in addition to reviving people's understanding of working class history. It's also linked to reviving of a fear of a sense of place. And those two things are quite interesting because actually people do take pride in living within a particular community. And that does bring in another element of solidarity. But linked to you, you link that to working class history and you can then cement sort of real bonds. I come from Liverpool originally. I was born in Liverpool. We moved out when I was a kid, but I always have a, my, I've got relatives up there. Liverpool now has almost declared UDI, you know, as a, as a city. It's a socialist city now. Um, it wasn't always, but it is now. And, they, and what the, um, the Labour movement up there has done 
has built up an understanding that we are Liverpudlians and this is what we've gone through and these are the series of actions we've had to fight against. And, you know, and they've done it in a, such a creative way. And um, even down to the, you know, the, the football teams and stuff like that, there's a huge sense of solidarity that is built up there. But that's happening in other places. So I quite think there's something that we really are developing now, which is reviving a pe people's sense of their, of, of their class history, but linking that to another bond, which is about locality too and where they live. And again, I, it's an interesting moment. It's an interesting moment. Yeah, I think, you know, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but it's striking to when you say that. I remember during the, uh, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ran for Congress mm. for the first time two years ago, you know, she ran, she's elected most of her district. She lives in the Bronx, but most of her district is in Queens, which is just, you know, the most extraordinarily diverse place in the world. Uh, and I remember knocking, I lived in New York, and I remember knocking on doors for her in Queens. And um, you know, block by block, different immigrant communities and so on. Um, it was often said about her that she was really the candidate of the white gentrifying youth in, in Queens, you know, that the, 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 that was the kind of voter base that supported her most. And I, I imagine there's, I think there's some truth in that. Um, but I also think that uh, that is clearly does not exhaust the kind of voter bases that candidates like her around the country increasingly yeah. have, have developed. And it's clear that there is a kind of uh, shared identity in, you know, the kind of diversity and working class experience and struggles yeah. and gentrification in a place like Queens that forged something new and more, you know, more specific to the place, mm. I think. So when, Alex, when you asked me about what my comments are or what I'd comment on American politics, see, I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare. You must probably thought the answer I gave you was rubbish, but... I don't blame you, but it's like that. It's a unique, I just, there's much more you need to know before you pronounce on these things. And I think sure. that there's elements of subtlety now in our movement where people are thinking so much more deeply. You know, it isn't, you know, intersectionality has become a big issue now around all of it. And then again, it's, it's, I think that that will nourish our movement. Can I give you one anecdote, a couple of anecdotes before I go? Yes. When I, when I picked up the book, I use leaflets as bookmarks because I'm always on a train or on a bus or something. I'm reading and I'm off to a demonstration or a march or something like that or a meeting. And so I naturally, the leaflet I've picked up, I'll use as a bookmark. Two things. One, when I picked up this book, in here is a bookmark. Now, this is, a, this is an event in 19, I think it's 19, oh God, I can't remember, 82, I think. Yeah. And it, no, it was 92. And it's Brontair O'Brien commemoration. Brontair O'Brien was one of the Irish leaders, well, you know, the Irish leaders of the Chartist movement. And what happened was, is a, a, one of our Irish associations discovered the grave of Brontair O'Brien in a cemetery in Hackney and tied it up. But then they had an annual celebration. And they said, the, the following is the order of arrangement for the Brontair O'Brien commemoration in the cemetery up in Park in Hackney. The introduction by the chair, Jerry Lawless, president of the Bronte O'Brien Committee, laying of wreaths by the leader of the council, the deputy leader of the council, Doris Daly on behalf of the Leitrim People's Association others, lament on the pipes, an introduction by the main speaker, John MacDonald, misspelt, um, former deputy leader of the GLC, oration by John MacDonald, and then adjournment to the Magpie Stump Public House, Stoke Newington, Church Street. That's the sort of movement I like, really. But you do your commemoration, you commemorate your history of someone who's then, who's been forgotten, then you revive it. And then 
down to the pub. And the other leaflet that was in there was a, um, a leaflet for a, a public meeting we held about the Gromwick strike. I don't know if you've heard of this. This is a group, the Asian women that came out on strike at a, at a, in a um, production, uh, photographic production. And that was a huge, immensely significant strike. It's where a group of Asian women said, we're not taking it anymore joined the union, came out on strike, and again, a mass mobilization of the whole movement. I, I worked for the National Union of Mine Workers at the time, and I can remember we were having marches of 5,000 people behind banners and all the rest of it. And it just again, uh, what happened there, there was a commemoration of that only a, a year ago in Kilburn at one of the local theatres where they brought all the people together. Tragically, a number of the um, strikers have passed away. But that was a revival of interest in 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 a huge breakthrough in the Asian community here where Asian women themselves asserted their, their strength really against quite a brutal uh, oppressive employer but also their strength against the male dominated trade union movement as well where they, they really you know took the lead it was incredible so yeah it was nice reminiscing on all of that okay I'm sorry if this has been immensely boring it might have been a bit rambling and I apologize this has definitely not been immensely boring John don't worry <laughs> I tell you, you've, you've lightened my lockdown. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're enjoying the podcast. You know, feel free to be in touch further with us, John, as you if you have other thoughts or reactions or anything. All right. Uh, nice, nice lovely, yeah, lovely meeting you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack. <laughs>